This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We will now have the scripture reading for today. And today's passage is from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 19 to chapter 19, verse 8. Now, I'll be reading from the New International Version. The, now is a good time to grab your hard copy Bibles, but if you do not have one, you can raise your hand and we can hand one to you. Alternatively, you can also look at the verses on the slides. Now, I'll invite uh, Sister Faith to come up and read the passage for us. And then after that, I'll invite Pastor Andrew to explain what has been read to us as well. Sister Faith, please. Today's passage is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 19, and we'll be reading till chapter 19, verse 8. Verse 19. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king, that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner. and He called down to the gatekeeper. Look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. 
The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Chapter 19, verse 1. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day, as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men, who have just saved your life, and the lives of your sons and daughters, and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you, and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you will be pleased if Absalom were alive today, and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everyone. Let's bow our heads, go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much that we can come before your word again today. We just pray that as we read your word, you give us hearts and minds of understanding and to truly be able to see uh, great need for king of justice, to see your need for justice done in this world. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many years ago, I lived in uh, Woodlands. And below uh, my block in Woodlands, there was a uh, childcare. And uh, one day, I remember waking up. I can't remember what I was doing there, but I went downstairs, uh, and there was this guy loitering at the childcare. And so I called up this, uh, the Woodlands police post, which I, I had the number on my fridge, and I called them up, and I said, oh, look, you know, there's this guy acting a bit suspiciously at the childcare. And half an hour later, I got this knock on the door. And the police were there, and they said, oh, you know, thanks for making this report. And they commended me for calling them. They said, oh, but next time, can you call 999? Because the guy that, uh, that you reported actually were looking for him. Right? He's this serial molester. And I felt really bad after they left because I felt that uh, you know, I could have actually called the police uh, much earlier and they could have done something about it. And the reason why I felt really bad about it was because when I was a teenager, I remember I had a good friend who had a girlfriend. And this girlfriend actually told us about how when she was really young, her piano teacher had actually molested her. But when the police came to arrest the piano teacher, he actually flew back to Taiwan and never got arrested. All of us listening that day, we felt really upset, right? Because there was this great injustice that was done. And uh, there was nothing done for my friend's girlfriend. 
And I think we feel that way when there's injustice, right? We feel that way when uh, we hear of someone's father who has perhaps lost their life savings to scammers, or like I know a relative who's lost a lot of money because the renovators ran off with his money. And whenever there's this great injustice, we feel upset. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been introduced to David. And David, in the narrative, is actually someone who's actually really close to God. He's one with God's heart. He's chosen by God, and God was with him. And narrative, right from the very start, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, has kind of shown us that David is good in so many ways. He was a good king. He was a just king. He was successful in defending the nation, and he was God's king. But the last few weeks, as we've been looking at the life of David, have shown him to be all too human, right? And so he abused justice. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. In the weeks that followed, we learned just a week ago that David's son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. But David failed to reign of justice. He didn't do anything about it. He left it, right? And as a result, David's son Absalom then murdered his brother Amnon. And again, David did nothing. And so as we come to today's passage, we actually see that there is a lack of justice that's happening among God's people in the land of Israel. As we come to today's passage, we see that the oldest son now is Absalom, the guy that murdered his brother Amnon. He's now the prince. He's now in line for the throne. He's back in the palace as if nothing has happened. There's no justice done. There is no punishment paid. So what do we see then today? In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Now, I think this is a, a very apt passage. You know, do you all remember what happened uh, two weeks ago? Some very significant thing happened in Singapore, right? We had the, the presidential elections. And one of the first things that uh, Ngok Song, Taman Shamugaratnam, and Tan Kin what did they do? They, they go out campaigning, right? And one of the most important things when you go out and you do these interviews and you go and meet the people on the streets and the hawker centers is you've got to look presidential, right? You look at all the photographs of the presidential campaign people, you look at the newspapers, you don't see them walking around in their singlets and their crocs, right? They're wearing like their, their nice shirts and they're wearing ties and they're wearing suits. And that's what Absalom is doing here, right? He's making himself look like the king, right? He's trying to be kingly. So if you think about it, during this time, nobody else would be riding around in a chariot with 50 men running ahead of them, except for David. It's a bit like, um, this is, uh, if you ever see this happening, this is uh, usually what the president travels in in Singapore. So this is a picture of Halima Yaakob, right? And she's traveling around with her presidential, uh, you know, limousine with her police Escort, as well as, you know, the big uh, SUV at the back, the flashing lights, if you ever see that's happening, then you know that, okay, the president is coming or some big shot is here. Now, obviously, if you saw Ngkok Seng or Tang Kim Len traveling around like this, you'd be saying, hey, what are you doing, right? You're not even president yet, but you're traveling around as if you were the president. But that's exactly what 
we see here, right? We see that Absalom is engaged in this PR campaign where he's pretending as if he is the king. He's living as if he's the king. He's the only person apart from David who's going around with his chariot and his 50 men running ahead of him. So this is like the first C, okay, the first C of Absalom's campaign. The next thing is, in verse 2, we learn that he gets up early in the morning and he stands by the side of the gate leading to the city gate. Now, the city gate in Jerusalem is a bit like our Orchard Road, our City Hall and Shenton Way, all rolled up together. It's because, you know, these uh, ancient cities had a wall around it. So if you want to go into the city, the only way you really have to go in is through the city gate. So Absalom's there early in the morning. And what is he doing there? Well, what he's doing there early in the morning is whenever people come to come to complain to the king to make a decision, a judicial decision, Absalom will be there. You'd ask them, where do you come from? And he says, look, you look through their papers or whatever here, their argument. And he'll say, look, your claims are valid and proper, right? If I were the judge, I would see that you would receive justice. But the only problem is there is no representative of the king to hear you. So this is a classic thing that you do as a politician, right? It's not good enough that you look the part but you've got to create dissatisfaction with the government, right? You've got, to, you know, you've got to create unhappiness. And that's what he's doing. He's creating unhappiness against the king. If only I were the king, if only I were the judge of your case, you would receive justice. Now, in today's world, that's what the opposition does, right? Opposition says, oh, you know, we live in the world about inflation. What is the government doing about it? Maybe it's about crime, rising crime, unemployment, youth unemployment, housing costs. All these things, right? The opposition raises up so that people feel unhappy with the incumbent. And that's exactly what Absalom is doing here. But his issue is with justice. He says, look, if you come to me, if only I was the king, you would receive justice. But the justice that Absalom is actually offering is no justice at all, right? Because he's basically saying to everybody, you will all receive justice. You will all receive a positive response to your case. Now, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, if you ever get a chance, is Better Call Saul. Okay, I really like Better Call Saul. It's like the best of all the TV series that you know, I've seen. And one of the mottos of Better Call Saul, who is this lawyer, is... Speedy justice for you. But actually, it's not really speedy justice. Lah. Because what he's really saying is that if you've caused a traffic accident, you are involved in drug dealing, you've got parking tickets, you're driving drunk, it doesn't matter, right? Because I can make it legal for you. You'll be satisfied if you come, better call Saul, right? Saul Goodman. And that's basically what Absalom is doing. He's saying, look, if you come to me, if I'm the king, if I'm the judge, you will be happy, right? You'll be satisfied by it. So, Absalom has his PR campaign, criticizes David's justice and creates unhappiness. But last of all, he also has his charm offensive. 
Also, whenever anyone approached him, bow down before him. Absalom would reach out, take his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Okay, what is happening here? Well, what usually happens is, in the ancient world, if you're the king, if people approach you, they would come and bow down before you. But Absalom, before you start bowing, would grab you by the shoulder, you know, hold you upright, shake your hand, and give you a kiss on the cheek. Now, obviously, it's not the kiss on the lips like the Spanish football president, right? What is he doing here? He's, he's basically saying, look, don't bow down before me, right? Stand up. Let me shake your hand. Let me give you a hug. I'm a really warm, approachable person. I'm not aloof, and I'm not elite. I'm a man of the people, right? He's like going to the hawker centers. He's shaking hands with the chakwitao man. He's going to the market. You know, he's hugging the fishmonger and the vegetable seller. He's trying to show that he's a man of the common people. And that's what Absalom is trying to do here. It's a bit like, you know, Donald Trump. He's like worth $2.1 billion, right? Like, how can someone be worth so much money? Who knows, right? But you know, the way he projects himself is he goes down to the fast food places. He's shaking hands with people because he's one of the people, right? He's one of the common people. And that's exactly what Absalom is trying to do. He's trying to charm people to make them feel as if, look, I might be king, but I'm one of you. I identify with you. I know your problems. I hear you. But all he's really doing is, it says there, that Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Now this is the author's comment. This is the editor's comment. And this is like an assessment of what Absalom is doing. He's stealing people's hearts. It's, it's the word that is used when an adulterer steals the heart of a spouse, right? Where an adulterer steals the heart of someone whose heart doesn't belong to them. And that's what Absalom was doing. He was stealing the hearts of the people from their rightful King David. David was one with God's heart. He was anointed by God. He was with God. He was chosen by God. But Absalom was stealing the hearts of the people from them. Now, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Gisha in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said, go in peace. So he went to Hebron, and then Absalom sent messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Now, here we see the true colors of Absalom, right? He's launching a coup to take over the kingship from David. And he does it in the most atrocious the most scandalous way, right? He uses the name of the Lord in vain. He says to his father, David, I want to go to Hebron down in the south because I made a vow to the Lord and I want to worship the Lord in Hebron. But he's not there in Hebron to worship the Lord, but he's there to launch a coup. And this is the only time we hear the words, the Lord, come out of Absalom's mouth, right? Here's a person who only uses God's name in the context of a lie and deception and falsehood. And it's very sad because 
The king, the father, his own very father, says to him, go in peace. But Absalom has no intention of going for peace. He's there to take the kingdom for himself. In Hebron, there's this conspiracy, right, where all the 12 tribes of Israel, at the sound of the trumpets, are to say Absalom is king in Hebron. Now, this is so sad, right? Because at the beginning, it says, at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king. Now, it's only a few, just like a side temporal note, but you've got to ask yourself, what is David doing in all this time? What is he doing? Is he just blur? Is he like Sotong? Is he just sitting there, oblivious to the fact that his son is driving up and down the main streets of Jerusalem in this chariot with 50 men? Is he not aware that, that there's all this discontentment and this conspiracy happening? Seems like it, right? It seems as if the king is doing nothing. Just as he did nothing when Amnon raped his sister Tamar, just as he did nothing when Absalom murdered his brother Amnon, So here we see David doing nothing when it's clear that Absalom is trying to seize his kingship. Now many years ago, uh, one of my sons was in secondary school and his principal was this guy called Peter Tan. And I really, really highly respected uh, this guy Peter Tan. He was a good and godly Christian man and he used to have this meet the parents' uh, principal session where we all go to the auditorium and we'll all be sitting where you are and he'll be up the front here. And he was very, to me, very sincere as a Christian because he would actually begin this meet the parents' session in prayer. Uh, this is a secondary school, right? He would actually pray. And I remember once we went there and he told a story about how there was a boy in the secondary school who had been found cheating so he'd been brought to his office and he had confessed to cheating. And as a result, Peter said that this boy got zero for his assignment or his exam or his test. Peter said that the next day, the parents came to see me in my office and the father got really angry with me. And the father said, if I had known that my son would get zero for his exam, I would have told him to lie. So Peter related the story to us, and then he looked at us and he said, what are we doing as parents teaching our children, right? He said, you know, because what this parent was doing was teaching this boy to disdain, despise, and disrespect the authority of the school, and despise and disrespect the rules and regulations and consequences of disobedience. And lastly, he said, to despise and disrespect God who made us and who taught us what is right and wrong. And that's what David is doing here, right? Because David is enabling and allowing and encouraging Absalom to to do all these things. And it's not just Absalom now who is rejecting God and all his rules, but he's bringing all the tribes together with him to rebel against God. Now, this is not a new pattern or repetition or type in Israel's history, right? Because in Israel's history, if you remember when Israel was uh, delivered from Egypt to the Promised Land, 
There were two occasions where God's people also rebelled against the leader chosen by God. So when they were escaping from Egypt to the Promised Land, God had appointed Moses and Aaron to be their leader. But as they made their journey to the Promised Land, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt on the wilderness, right? We want to go back to Egypt. And so in verse 4, they said, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And what did God do? What was the consequence? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? And God said, in this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and was grumbled against me. And so the very first time we see God's people rebelling against God's appointed leader was in the desert as they were making their way to the promised land. And the consequences, they all died in the desert. The next time this happened was at Korah, Numbers chapter 16, together with Detham and Abraham and 250 of the community leaders, they rose up again against Moses. And this time God said the ground would open up. And indeed the ground opened up and swallowed them all, all who were associated with Korah together with their possessions. And so we see that what Absalom is doing now is no different from what Israel had constantly been doing all the way through in their history, right? Rebelling against Moses and Aaron, Korah rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And so Absalom rebelling against King David and bringing the 12 tribes together with him is no different a pattern and a repetition of what we've already seen in the past. So what is God going to do then? Well, obviously God is going to do the same thing, right? He's going to punish Absalom together with the tribes. And so this is Jerusalem, and that's David's palace together with David. So Absalom went to Hebron, right, which you can see down south. And so that's uh, Absalom together with his supporters, the 12 tribes of Israel. So they come to Jerusalem, and David runs away to this place called Mahanaim. Okay, so you can see that up there to the northeast. So Absalom, together with his army, then pursue David, and they have this major battle in this place called the Forest of Ephraim, which is on the north. Now how that ends, in a spoiler, is that Absalom actually gets killed right, during the battle. Uh, his hair or his head gets caught in the limbs of the tree, and he's vulnerable, and then the soldiers spear him, they cut him down, and then he dies. But this is actually consistent, right, with what we've seen so far. Whenever God's people choose another leader to rebel against God's anointed leader, God punishes them. And so what is the lesson for us today as we look at this part? I think the lesson for us is that this can also happen to us, isn't it? Uh, we, in our time, can follow the PR campaigns, the criticism that we hear of God's anointed, the charm offensive of this world, and we follow these false leaders, these false prophets, to deny our sovereign Lord Jesus. But if we do so, then the same way our condemnation and our destruction will also come 
against us. So I wonder for ourselves whether we can actually make the same mistake as God's people did then, right? And allow our hearts to be stolen away from us, away from our Lord Jesus, to follow all these false teachers and false prophets. I was really sad because I met up with a Christian from our old church recently. And um, this person tunes into uh, YouTube a lot. And so this person has stopped going to church and has all these doubts about the veracity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, whether he should still be a Christian. But the reason is because this person keeps assessing all these YouTube videos from all these people who plant all these seeds of doubt in their brain. And week after week, watching all these YouTube videos, it waters and feeds into the doubts that he has. And so today, he no longer follows Jesus Christ. But he's been taken in by the charm offensive, by the PR campaign, by all this criticism and unhappiness and discontentment that he hears online. Now, I wonder whether we can be like that. I wonder whether in your own lives, you've had people like Absalom steal your heart or possibly steal your heart away from your anointed king, Jesus. Whether you believe in the PR campaigns out there, the charm offensive, when people speak things that create discontentment against Jesus. Because if your heart is stolen from Jesus, and you are taken in by, in the sense, the absolutes of this world, then what happens? Well, God, in a sense, will, in the same way, condemn you and judge you, just like he did the people of Absalom's time, the people in the desert. So our take-home lesson, definitely, is not to let the people of Absalom steal our heart away from our anointed King Jesus, whether it should be the people we see on YouTube or people we read in books or people we hear about in podcasts. Don't let them make you feel discontented against Jesus. Don't let them charm you away from Jesus. Now, the focus of the narrative now focuses on David, right? So the first part of the narrative, the focus was all on Absalom. We know that in the forest of Ephraim, the army of Absalom gets defeated. Absalom himself is killed. But David doesn't actually go to the battle. Uh, because of the wisdom of uh, his military commanders, they say that it's safer for David to say in Mehanaim while his army goes out to fight. So while David is in Mehanaim waiting for the news, there are two messengers which are then sent to David, right? It's unknown Cushite and Ahimez, the son of Zadok, who just has to run, right? Okay, so the Cushite arrives second, Ahimenez, the Zadok, comes first. Now, what we're meant to pay attention to then is the interaction between these messengers and David. While David was sitting between the inner and outer courts, watchmen went up to the roof of the gateway of the wall, and he looked out and he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner and he called down, 
to the gatekeeper, look, another man is running alone. The king said he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimez, the son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He must have good news. So David is waiting and waiting. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for good news. So what is the news that comes? Well, in verse 19, Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. And Ahimez called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who have lifted up their hands against my lord the king. And then the Kushat arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. See, this is good news. You notice the response of the people bringing the news? The response of the army is, all is well. Hear the good news, right? And it is good. Because they were fighting against the armies of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were outnumbered and outgunned. But the Lord vindicated David by delivering him from the hand of the enemies. See, they are able, in fact, everybody is able to see the good news that God saved David by delivering him from the hand of the enemies. Now, it's interesting this word that keeps being repeated. The word in blue, vindicated. See, vindicated is a justice word. To vindicate basically is to show that you are right and someone is wrong, right? So, so the Lord vindicated David by showing that he's actually in the right and that Absalom was in the wrong. And he vindicated David by delivering him from the hand of Absalom. So if you remember all the way back in 1 Samuel 2 in the prayer of Hannah, right at the very beginning, first sermon that we actually had, the nature of God is to deliver his people from their enemies and to judge those who oppose him. And that's what we see happening here. We see that David is actually vindicated by the Lord because he judges Absalom and delivers David instead. Now, the sad thing is that actually, this is good news for everybody except for David. He's waiting for good news, right? Okay, there's a guy coming, that's good news. Okay, it's Ahimez, he's a good man, that's good news. But it's bad news that is brought to him. See, the king was shaken. He went up to his room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he kept saying, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The king was weeping and mourning. The king is grieving for his son. And again, it's repeated in verse 4. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, David is not a broken tape recorder, right? But the repetition of my son, my son, my son opens up to David 
and to us and the whole world what really matters to him. My son, that is what really matters to David. At the end of the day, the only good news that David was waiting for was not deliverance from Absalom, but that Absalom was spared and was still alive. So what was actually good news for the army, for the people, and for God was actually bad news for David. This helps us then to unpack and understand all that has happened since 2 Samuel chapter 13. Why is it David didn't do anything when Amnon raped his sister, Tamar, my son? Why is it David did nothing when Absalom murdered Amnon, my son? See, for David, his love for my son was greater than his responsibilities as God's king and as God's judge to uphold and to execute justice. Now this is really sad, but we have seen this before. You see, all the way back again, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, right? All the way back in the beginning, and all those weeks ago, we, we met someone just like him in the priest Eli, who had two sons, probably a Pinehas, right, who abused the sacrificial system, who used force to grab what they wanted, who had sex with the temple women. And again, we saw for the priest Eli, his love for this, his sons was greater than his responsibility over God's sacrificial and atonement temple system. So what we see today is that David is actually no different from Eli, the priest. And this is really tragic, right? Because here was David, who was anointed king over Israel, and he's on a completely different page from God in terms of God's justice, right? Absalom was the root and source of all evil among God's people in the land. He was the one bringing people away from God, dishonoring, disrespecting, and giving disdain to God, and David did nothing. And so if you remember, when David sinned, having adultery against Bathsheba and murdering Uriah's husband, God had promised that because he struck down Uriah with the sword and took his wife to be your own, and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And that's what we see here, right? We see that actually there is the sword of violence now in David's house. But the sword comes through David's failure to reign of justice, to restrain Absalom, and he loves Absalom above God's justice. And this narrative arc, right, in a sense, shows us all the more clearly why David, as much as he tries to be faithful to God, is unable to be God's faithful king and points us forward to a need of a much greater king, a greater judge. And so we end today's passage by looking forward all the way, much, much further in time, to Jesus, right? 
So Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. See, this is the judge that we really need. This is the king that we really need. We need Jesus. Because Jesus will always do what the Father does, and Jesus judges the same way the Father judges. And the response for us must always be to honor the Son. Now, many years ago, when I was in theological college, we were assigned to churches to be a catechist. And so I was assigned to this church in Australia, and there is really unusual ministry. Refugee ministry. I, I, I don't think we have refugee ministry in Singapore because I, I don't think we have refugee centers in Singapore, right? But this church I, I, I went to, they had a refugee center nearby where literally there were refugees from like Afghanistan, from Africa, from South America. All these different places were this refugee center. And so this church, we had ministry in this refugee center. So I went and met this refugee. And here's a Christian. And uh, he told me his life story. And what struck me was how much injustice there was in this refugee life. There was so much injustice in his home country which forced him to flee all the way to Australia. But even in Australia, he was really upset and angry as I spoke to him that day. Many years ago, I can still remember how upset he was because he felt that he had faced injustice in the Australian refugee system. He'd been stuck in this refugee camp for like four or five years. He felt like, like his life was in limbo, right? In a sense, we live in a world crying out for God's justice. I remember there was this debate between an atheist and a Christian. And this atheist says, oh, you know, our, our concept of justice is just a Western ideal, right? A Western construct. But the Christian person said, well, I challenge you to go to the deepest, darkest tribe in Africa or South America and Asia. And the first person you see, I want you to steal something from them and see what happens to you. See, justice is worldwide, right? You, you, you go to Africa or, or, or Asia or something, you steal something from someone, there is still a demand for justice, right? You will still be punished. And so for ourselves, within each and every one of us, we see that there is justice, there's a need for justice. But so often in this world, we, instead of getting justice, we have injustice, unfairness. So there's such a great need for us then to turn to Jesus and to stay in Jesus, to honor Jesus, and not to have our hearts stolen away from Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to confess that left to ourselves, we live in a world full of injustice, that even David, who was after your own heart, who was with you, who was chosen by you, as much as he tried to, because of his fallen humanness, loved his son Absalom more than being responsible for exercising and upholding your justice. Help us to see 
that he points forward to Jesus. He points forward to Jesus because in Jesus, we have one who is entrusted with all judgment. And he does as you do. And he promises to bring total justice when he comes again. And so, dear Father, help us not to be seduced of our hearts stolen by the epsilons of this world, to not listen to the voices which plant the seeds and feed the seeds of discontent on our happiness with Jesus, to not fall for the PR campaigns or the charm offensive for the epsilons of this world who would give us a different vision of justice. And dear Father, we know that this is only possible because you are working in our hearts, and so we commit our hearts into your hands. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so thank you, Pastor Andrew, for explaining the passage to us. Unfortunately, we don't have much time to discuss today. So what I suggest we can do is I will show us the reflection questions based on the sermon earlier, and then we can take a snapshot and discuss over tea or, or even over lunch. So two questions. First, why is there a need for justice? And second, what must we do to find true justice? So feel free to take a little snapshot of this and yeah, maybe this could guide your, your discussions from here on out. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg. 